millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Episode 8 is about education economics. What does economics have to do with education? What are the proposed funding options for third-level education? And how influential is location on third-level accessibility? Dr. Dara Flannery of the University of Limerick has the answers. Okay, so very welcome to this episode of the Irish Economics Podcast, and I'm joined here by uh, Dara Flannery, who's lecturer here at uh, University of Limerick, and today we're going to discuss education economics. So Dara, you're very welcome. It's great to have you. So to begin with, it would be interesting to think about, well, what is education economics? A lot of people would say, you know, education is a universal right. Where does the economics come into the whole situation? I suppose the economics come to it in terms of, you know, that, that uh, the application of economic ideas, economic methods in the education space. We spend a lot of resources in education, obviously in terms of government spending and we've uh, 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 across the uh, across the globe, a lot of resources dedicated towards education. So it's the application, as I said, in terms of economic principles and different methodologies towards the education space. Education has seen important coming from almost like the macroeconomic model side of things in terms of the link between education, the development of human capital and economic growth. So there's the kind of macroeconomic link in terms of the individual level that it's you know a link between education and development of individual human capital that enhances people's ability to earn, to get employment, get higher levels of income. So that's where, and then interesting questions that kind of arise from that, you know, in terms of think of basic economic concepts of efficiency and equity can apply those kind of concepts within education you know is there in the system that we have in Ireland for instance at primary secondary maybe particularly higher education you know can we can we look at them through the guise of efficiency and equity to see if there's policy recommendations or policy suggestions that we can make okay. so that's that's where I think economics fits with education yeah I, 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 I agree with you in terms of people see it as a as a good but you know at basic economics we have scarce resources so you know, how those resources are allocated or distributed in the education sense. It's yeah. a kind of interesting kind of concept, I think. Yeah, so maybe we can break that down a bit more. So, like, we only have so much money to spend on public services and ideas, I suppose, well, how do we best spend them? Yeah. And 
the best value for the individual then in a lot of these traditional models would be, well, what can, what education can they get that is best for their well-being, their employment prospects, things like that? Would that, that be yeah, right? like that, that would be kind of, there'd be a couple of strands of thought, I suppose, around in terms of the human capital theory, human capital framework in terms of viewing education very much from an investment perspective. Yeah. So you'd say finish upper secondary, for instance, and you're deciding whether to go to higher education, whatever path you want to do and the human capital approach if you were to take that would be to view it as an investment that okay you face certain costs and they might be upfront costs like fees like accommodation varying types of costs that you might face and then from the benefit side of things that you might accrue benefits to your in the form of labor market benefits particularly across your life cycle so when you finish the degree for the next 40 odd years you earn extra money and you have greater employment prospects because you went to college compared to if you didn't go to college. So it's like a cost-benefit decision, but it's very much from the human capital perspective, from Becker's kind of human capital model perspective, it would be seen as a an investment-type process. Right. So from the individual perspective. Now, there, there are other strands of thought. I suppose you could see it as a, a consumption idea as well. You know, some people just like to learn. You know, so some people go to college and they like to learn. So, you know, that that's a motivation or incentive for people to go. Again, I'm just using an example of higher education yeah. in terms of that choice. The, the investment side, look, you know, I, I say this in my first years, you know, people don't, I would imagine 17, 18 year olds don't sit down and get a spreadsheet and yeah. map out and kind of go, oh yeah, this and that. And But it, it might be there implicitly. It, maybe they put, so different people put different weights in it. Maybe the parents put weights in it. Yeah. But, but that's the idea with that kind of, I suppose, a keystone kind of, theory within education economics but then you could make the argument that the value the value isn't just how much money you can earn it's how much you enjoy the work or where it brings you and other opportunities that come with it so these sort of things people think about well what job do you want to do that would sort of fit into that model i think in in that way yeah there's a return like the 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 kind of using the the the, the lingo inside the different returns to education so you know they they create the incentive for you to to make a choice they increase the perceived benefit as opposed to the cost that that you derive from something so in that case education so you might have benefits or sorry a return to education from a financial point of view in terms of labor market and all the things i mentioned before and there might be other benefits like you know the better quality of life or you get a job that that you enjoy more as opposed to having to work in a job that you don't enjoy as much from a life satisfaction perspective there might be you know uh, perceived returns there as well and so how would that influence policy then in that context? Would, would should policy be directed towards promoting ones that have a greater likelihood of, 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 of economic returns or non-economic returns? Or it, yeah. It's a tough decision, I suppose. It is. Where policy kind of fits in, I suppose, is, is, is a couple of things. We could bring in other kind of economic concepts, for instance, market failure. Right. So if you just left the market up to itself, again, if we stick with higher education, because that's really where choices are made, because the pre- previous to that in your lifetime, a lot of it's compulsory education, so it's not the choice isn't really yours as such. Yeah. If we stick with say, the choice to go to higher education, from a government perspective, so uh, economic concept of market failure, if you just left the private market up to itself, so in terms of higher education, the fees would be set by the private market. Yeah. Demand, you know, the interaction of supply and demand would, would, would set the quantity of enrolments, essentially, and the price. Now, what that might do, and some people might think that's great, you know, because, you know, free market principles, some people might have that persuasion. But even from an efficiency perspective, that may not make sense because you, you can get market failure. So, for instance, if you get someone who's really, really clever and they get uh, the highest 
uh, achievement possible in upper secondary. But they can't go to college because of financial reasons, for instance. So the, the, the household doesn't have enough money to send them. Yeah. That person, if they had gone to college, speaking hypothetically, they might have become a brain surgeon. And they might have, you know, and in that case, you'd have massive, massive social returns. They'd benefit, that person would benefit. But yeah. obviously you'd have massive social returns. So it's not efficient that that person, you know, you kind of question begs, are you making the best use of your resources, your people as such as a country, if you let that happen? And you're not. I mean, you can, you know, from regardless even of the equity perspective, if you even think that's not fair, and it probably isn't fair, but even from an efficiency perspective, it doesn't make sense. So what do you do? It provides justification for government intervention, like any market failure, as economics would suggest. Yeah, it fills the gap between what the private market would would provide and what's best for society. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, there's different ways you can go about that that might be better or worse in, in this country we have grants so you know yeah. maintenance grants or people below a certain income threshold they don't pay fees and they might get a, a, a maintenance grant now mm. you know the 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 uh, nuances around the policy obviously are a different debate but at a very broad level that's the market failure and that's that provides the government intervention and this another side then obviously is the equity side. So if you care yeah. about equity, you know, by, by that same example, is it fair that that person can't go to college when their next door neighbour who maybe didn't achieve as well in their yeah. upper secondary exam, but they can go to college because... They have the resources. Exactly, home. they have the resources. So if you care about fairness, what do you do in that case? Yeah. You take money from some people and you give it to that person so they can go to college. So yeah. that's, that's, part, that's part of where the economics fits and... And I suppose uh, provide the rationale for government intervention and government policy. Yeah. So another thing you have to inspire me there, and we can edit this out if I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> yeah. Is uh, this brings up issues like streaming in secondary schools and these sort of things, and there's a huge social trade-off there. But is there an economic literature behind these sort of this, these sort of decisions in terms of the secondary in secondary level? Uh, I'm in terms of literature. I'm not overly familiar in terms of the literature in terms of streaming and those kind of things in terms yeah. of upper secondary performance. What I I suppose maybe that might be of interest is to have done some research recently with Kevin Denny in UCD and John Cullen in UIG in terms of kind of social socioeconomic impact on upper secondary performance. Right. Okay. Because we, we don't have good school level characteristics in there, like for instance streaming or things like that. But yeah. what we do have is information on their CEO points essentially, so yeah. uh, their performance in upper secondary and socioeconomic background and whether they went to a desk school. So some school level stuff, but there isn't the kind of yeah. granular level detail and that kind of side of things. But uh, you do see a socioeconomic gradient in leaving their performance in terms of the. The school characteristics, yeah, it, 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 I think from a slightly, you know, a, 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 I wouldn't say a great depth of knowledge in terms of that literature, uh, in terms of upper secondary, you, you can, you can get big deviations, you know, in terms yeah. of performance, even from primary school, people who are at the same level of ability, things go very different in secondary. A lot happens in secondary level yeah. of education yeah. to either... Uh, exacerbate or perpetuate differences, and even across gender, for instance, you know okay. that you get girls performing better than boys at secondary okay. for whatever reasons. So your socioeconomic analysis, were you able to pick out different traits that were associated with performing better in school? Or? Yeah, in terms of socioeconomic, so that it was an overall measure in terms of the the, the performance at secondary level, and particularly actually distributional performance to see what helps people at the lower end. Right. as opposed to the upper end in terms of distribution. 
And I suppose what we found is that, you know, people at the lower end of the distribution socioeconomics, there isn't much variation. Resources dedicated towards helping people at the lower end of the distribution, so kind of lower ability students and such, yeah. it's not really coming from the socioeconomics. There's, there's something else going on in terms of uh, uh, their performance. Okay, so it's not to do with uh, the family background, these sort of effects, they're not driving the performance in school, there's something else that the data isn't really picking up. At that point of the distribution, yeah. yeah. Right, like okay. where it fits, I suppose, then, where the link, where it was motivated, in fact, actually, was that when you include, for instance, you look at the choice to go to higher education or not, in, the, say, the Irish kind of context, yeah. and when you include, when you control for certain factors like CEO points, it almost mitigates the social socioeconomic factors because you know we have this if you look at the raw data you'll see okay you know people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds are uh, disproportionately not going to higher education so you know you have a problem in terms of equity but when you actually bring in and you control for CEO points so their performance upper secondary it mitigates a lot of that variation of that differences in participation in upper secondary so what it's suggesting is actually the problem is further back it's not at the point, or a large part of it isn't at the point of upper secondary. So it's something's going on in secondary that those people in lower socioeconomic groups aren't getting into third level because of maybe something that's happening further back in their in their lifetime. So, okay, so another question then is when we're talking about um, investment in education and we, we want to, from a public perspective, from like the government wants to get the best bang for their buck, basically. Yeah. And... Should they uh, be directing money? Should, should like should they be focusing on education that that that's good for industrial development? Should they be conscious of the fact that educated people, like there's this whole concept of brain drain that they might leave might leave Ireland and and therefore they're not getting the return on their investment. How yeah. are these things that that the government has to navigate? Yeah, be cognizant of. Yeah, so I mentioned earlier in terms of say, the private returns and the government intervention with market failures and things, but there's obviously the, the social return side of things as well. Yeah. So in terms of again, say going back to government motivation or government uh, um, uh, reasons for policy interventions. So the social returns are, are big ones, and part of that is things like externalities, for instance. Yeah. So if I go to college and it makes me more productive, for instance and makes me earn more, so I accrue benefits from that. But society might accrue benefits from that as well, because, for instance, I pay higher taxes because I earn more. So those resources can be used for different parts of society, whatever way the government decides. As well as that, as you mentioned, in terms of investment, so particularly for a country like like Ireland, you know, as trying to attract foreign direct investment, that forms a big part of our economic model as such. Having an educated workforce is... it, 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 It... benefits society you know having uh, dedicating resources should I say towards having an educated society accrues benefits in other ways so maybe it's through corporation tax receipts or yeah. you know subsidiary employment or things like that that there are these returns the other returns that in terms of that have been looked at is lower for instance lower crime levels higher health levels yeah. that there are these other impacts that uh, society accrues because you have a population that's more educated yeah. So in terms of the debate around, they're the things that I suppose if, if someone say, okay, why does government invest or should invest in education? They're the, they're the economic reasons or rationales that you would point towards. The difficulty, and this is the question that comes up and it's, it's relevant in terms of the funding debate for higher education and things, yeah. is how do you measure yeah. You know, like, and where yeah. where does the burden lie? So we, it, it, it's, it's, it's easy to understand the link between, okay, I go to college, that means I earn more, 
and there the benefit accrues to me. So yeah. by that rationale, they say, well, you should pay for education because you're the one deriving the benefit from an economic perspective. You know, that's. Yeah. But at the same hand, there is a there's a wider benefit for everybody else. There's that, a wider benefit, yeah. but but quantifying those and comparing them to the other ben- the private benefits is that's a very tricky yeah. kind of side. Even even measuring the private benefits is a, is a tricky exercise in terms yeah. of uh, you know people have made careers out of trying to accurately measure those 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 private benefits. The actual causal link, the, the explicit link between. Okay, increased schooling and people earning money, yeah. extra money. You know, so the devil is in the detail, I suppose, in terms of trying to trying to see that balance or try to yeah. best um, inform that balance between social returns, private returns, market failures, and that's that's where it becomes yeah. possibly more of a judgment call or somewhat of a judgment call in terms of um, voters or governments, essentially. Yeah, and like the pure well, the pure economic approach, maybe to think, well, what's the total benefit? What's the benefit? What proportion of that is was the private benefit? What proportion of that is the public benefit? But that's very difficult. And then you think about things like, you see Dublin in the last 10 or 20 years becoming a hub for all these digital uh, industries or whatever. But it, it has a benefit for Dublin, it has a wider benefit for Ireland. But also because this is, this is a really popular area for, for these sort of technologies, that's attractive for, for bringing people, in, talented people into Ireland as well. So this is another externality that the Dublin has benefited. Agglomeration kind of affects Exactly, yeah. 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 So yeah. these are things that, yeah, very hard to quantify, but I suppose justify the public investment in the first place. Yeah. There has been some research, you know, there have been individual studies, for instance, to look at uh, the impact on crime. So to take advantage and change of years. So in terms of the methodologies used at a basic level, it's, yeah. you know, take a change of years and compulsory schooling. So one cohort of one generation, for instance, had to stay in school till they were 15. The next generation had to stay in school till they were 16. Yeah. So to take advantage of that break in policy to see, okay, what's the causal impact? What has been the direct impact of having extra people educated, for instance, on crime levels and they find crime goes down yeah. or civic participation so you know proportion of people's voting and things like that and they have there is evidence for those there's other around census a guy called Walter McMahon who's tried to bring all these things together and say okay what where's the burden lie yeah. and I, I don't know if it's a typical kind of economist kind of answer but it seemed to be 50-50 right, that okay. was the answer you know so I like it, sure, that, you know, know. yeah it is it is you know so this whole human capital approach is one way of looking at uh education but there's other other theories out there like signaling now signaling is something that i'm aware of when it comes to oh you have to project that you have a certain ability or whatever and i always thought of it as a bit like an old wives tale as opposed to a formal theory but there is a bit of a a theory behind it yeah yeah so uh the signaling theory it was kind of i wouldn't say a reaction you know or kind of uh to the human capital kind of theory it's very different has very different implications in terms of even education policies so so i mentioned the human capital uh, model the, the 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 assumption or the link that that makes is that you get extra education that makes you more productive yeah. because you're more productive that means you earn more so kind of traditional economics you know you are more productive the people who are more productive earn more how yeah. do you get more productive it's by building your own capital by getting a degree or whatever you know getting extra education what the signaling kind of says is yeah there is this link between extra education and earnings so it kind of agrees on that point but it says it's for different reasons. It doesn't make the link between education and productivity. Yeah. All it says is that education gives you a signal that you may be productive and it helps screen the marketplace between, say, different cohorts or different groups. So yeah. people who have degrees, 
they're generally more productive or they, they, they give out this signal that they might be more productive. Yeah. How, how employers, for instance, how they screen through in terms of their hiring decisions is that they use this signal, this education signal, essentially, to yeah. help them screen through the labour market and help them in terms of identifying uh, people who may be productive. It, that, it, it breaks with the human capital theory in that the human capital theory makes this explicit link between extra education means you are more productive and you earn more. The signaling doesn't make that link in terms of... There's a bit of noise around the, the, the cause and effect, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the, the, the implications, I suppose, why it's important in terms of implications is that so with the human capital model, people are more productive because they get extra education. So therefore, it makes sense to invest in education, for instance, and, you know, going to college and the systems that we have set up now kind of reflect that in a way. Yeah. Signaling will kind of put a question mark in set because it was just actually... Is spending four years in college the best way to to signal that you are a productive worker, that you may be a productive worker? Yeah. Is there other ways you could design the whole education system to be able to screen for employers or you know to uh, have a system in such a way that it, it helps employers in a way in terms of screening their marketplace, in terms of demand for labour, that... You know that college might be inefficient in that kind of way. Right. The, the college system that we have is inefficient, so there might be. So the college system is is based on the fact that you do four years, you develop a set of skills, and therefore when you go for a job, the job says, "Well, you've spent these four years, you have these skills." The signalling approach would say, "Well, you've spent the four years, you may have these skills. It's probably most likely that you do, um, but you have a degree. Which so the degree tells me, yeah. or signals to me, yeah. that okay, this person." as opposed to people without degrees, is possibly a productive worker. Whereas, Yeah, so what's the alternative then following the signal approach? Is it to have signals along the way to, or better ways to, to, to test? To yeah, do? essentially, yeah. Kind of suggest better ways to test in terms of whether people are productive workers. So yeah. maybe shorter ways, you know, does someone have to spend four years in college to get that signal? Is there a more efficient way to, yeah. to screen these people or to get an accurate signal of these people yeah. into the labour market. So it's it's a different way of viewing the use of education, I suppose, or, you know, the, 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 the motivation for it. I suppose it relates to things like, I know in Limerick especially, there's a lot of um, job placements when it comes to degrees and things like that. So that might help with the yeah. whole signaling process. Exactly, and, yeah. And yeah, yeah. aspects like that in terms of... Yeah. Terms of like, I, but I say to my students as well, you know, in terms of human capital, that, that so the empirical evidence tends to lean towards the human capital that it does improve productivity you know there's been a lot of studies to kind of look at both the signaling uh, uh, empirical evidence is, is mixed essentially there's a thing called sheepskin effects that's been looked at uh, right. so to look at okay so so if someone has 15 years of education as opposed to 16 years of education the human capital model will say what do they have they have an extra year of education so that's how you know it's a marginal that, benefit. exactly it's a marginal benefit. Whereas the signal would say, if you move from fifteen to sixteen and you get a degree, there should be a big jump yeah. in the link between, you know, your, that year of education and your earnings. You should see a spike in terms of because you got a piece of paper. Yeah, so that makes sense though. Like I, I, I it, yeah, it makes intuitive sense to me that if you have the piece of paper, you're going to do a bit better. Yeah, yeah, but the imperialism yeah. is mi- you know it's mixed in terms of taking it the. Yeah. The, the, I think different right. countries and different contexts have found different things yeah. so there isn't a uniformity you know or a kind of big headline okay. study where this kind of a recent study in Colombia that took advantage again of a policy break to look at the impact of 
uh, the amount of education people get, the intensity of education people get in terms of contact hours or years in education and their productivity later on in work and found the link between it so it kind of supports the human capital framework in terms of get more education you are more productive so it's it's a it's an interesting field uh you know that it's still kind of under the microscope in terms of uh empirical analysis and so another aspect then sort of struck me as interesting was the returns to different types of education change through time and maybe it's like supply and demand that maybe 20 or 30 years ago or more if you got a phd you were you were at the top basically whereas now a lot of people especially since the the recession a lot of people got phds and it maybe doesn't have the same earning power as it once had now you definitely you're not going to go too far wrong with a phd but i think supply and demand plays a role here that there's more there's there's more supply um so would these things change with time would this affect policy then that maybe we should be trying to balance out oversupply in, in some areas yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a you know, I look in terms of yes, the, the premium attached to higher levels of education. There is, you know, there's evidence in terms of there is a diminishing marginal return to years of education or levels of education. You know yeah. that there there is still a positive benefit in terms of earnings and the OECD reports and there's been reports in the US, not so much in Ireland about returns to postgraduate education, for instance. Yeah. But there, are, you know, that there is a positive return in terms of your earnings from getting extra education, but it does have a diminishing there is a diminishing effect to it. But, and that kind of makes sense. You think of it, you know, what's the return to reading and writing yeah. to an adequate level? The return is massive. Like In terms of the labour market, even in terms of your daily life, if you can't read and write, so let's kind of equate that with a primary education, for instance. If you can't read or write or do simple maths yeah. to a basic level, you know, you're fairly hamstrung in terms of the labour market. So the return to that level of education is quite high. Mm-hmm. There's still a positive return as you go up, getting your leaving cert or getting your upper secondary education, getting a degree, master's, PhD, there's still a positive return. In terms of the returns to them over time, yeah, as I said, you know, in terms of supply, that one would imagine, you know, the supply has gone up massively. Another interesting one was um, uh, IT, because I remember when I was in school and it was, there was, I knew people who did IT degrees and companies were coming in, this is in the late 90s, companies were coming in and uh, pu- pulling people out basically in the middle of their degrees and giving them jobs because there, were, there was such a shortage of, of people with that skill. And then two or three years later, there was that whole dot-com bubble burst and there were just, people had no jobs. But now, but after that, then that led to a shortage because people said, oh, that, don't touch that area. And now there's, well, maybe there's still a legacy of that to a certain extent, but more people are going into that area again. But so the cyclical kind of nature of it as well in terms yeah, of labour market. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Like there is a, so the, Seamus McGuinness in the SRI, he's done a lot of work in terms of skills mismatch. Right. And, you know, even say skills mismatch that, you know, that this, this idea that there's over-education in the market, that the, the education system, I suppose, is not perfectly aligned in terms of the skills and competencies that are required in the labour market. Yeah. I think Seamus's research off the top of my head, I think, you know, has found that Ireland is, pretty high on that by those measures of over education those those um uh, uh, over education uh, metrics in terms of their labor market but there is a just kind of related point the returns there, there's a lot of heterogeneity around the turn so you know you see kind of a lot of measures and you'll see this in economics a lot that there's an average effect of something you know so the impact of something on something so yeah. education and earnings and you get the average effect but there's massive heterogeneity around it in terms of the returns to different things. So the returns to an arts degree is vastly different to the returns of a computer software degree or yeah. an economics degree, for instance. You know, but they might vary across time. Yeah. 
but people still do them. You know, people still want to do an art school and they still want to do a degree in tribal dance or whatever it is. Yeah. Because they like doing it, brings back to the kind of start of the conversation that we had. You know, yeah, there's a consumption benefit to them. There's a social benefit to them. Yeah. You know, we you know, this as a society, do we want everyone to have a computer software degree because that's what we you know, that's the way the labour market is set up. I in my personal opinion, no, you, you know, that there's a social benefit to be derived from people doing other types of things. You might see the yeah. you know, the, the the finance manager of a university might be happy about it because they're paying the same fee as someone else, you know, or that the, 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 the taxpayer mightn't be too happy because they're subsidising that person to the same degree as yeah. a, a, a nursing degree or a medical degree or whatever it is, someone who might earn a lot and pay a lot to the taxpayer. Yeah. But there's a social benefit to yeah. be derived, you know. Well, so. there is, and there is an economic argument in a different way because if you're, fu- you're subsidising an accountant, well, it's quite, it's a low risk subsidy because yeah. there's, there's low, they're going to get a good job and they're going to contribute back and whatever. If you're subsidising somebody maybe in arts or whatever and who's going on to, to work in literature, there's, a, there's a, a low probability somebody's going to have a huge impact and that's going to have a huge social benefit then as well. So there is that, as well as the social impact that everybody benefits personally, there is, there is the, the few who do really, really well that, that benefits that, the, you know, the, the feedback comes back in in terms of, yeah. in terms of the value to the economy and to the, to, to the rest of, uh, of of the welfare of everybody else. But that's the difficulty, I think, you know, in terms of how you measure those returns or how you, yeah. as a society, show preference towards those returns. You know, it, it's, that's where there, there's a, a tricky area, you know, in terms of, because that relates obviously to financing then, you know, so if you don't care about that stuff, you put a lot of the burden on the private individual yeah. in terms of your financing. Whereas if you do care about that stuff, you know, you want more of a mixture in terms of your burden. So maybe we can move on then to some of your work in terms of uh, the Irish context. And I know you've done work on funding Irish education. Maybe you could just tell yeah. us about that. Yeah, so it, it mainly higher education. So um, so I suppose at the moment, it, the, 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 the sector, I suppose the higher education sector, it's gone through a lot of flux in the last few years in terms of government funding has decreased significantly, yeah. whereas numbers, student demand essentially has gone up. So what that manifests itself in is a, a significantly decreased expenditure per student, for instance, in uh, at third level education. Yeah. So you, you, I suppose this is obviously viewed as a as a problem yeah. that you have this uh, increase in uh, demand coming from demographics and different things, and you have falling resources. So how it's manifested itself? One issue, you know, we've. I think it's the second worst student staff ratio at third level education in the OECD. I think Turkey are the only country behind us. Right. You know, uh, people point towards rankings, but okay, kind of give or take them in terms of their metrics. But, yeah. you know, in terms of research output and things that people point towards that there is a an issue at hand and obviously in terms of funding and into the future as well, because demographically the projections are more people are going to go to third level education. Yeah. So there has been options put forward and uh, there's been a thing called the Cassell's Report two, three years ago now at this stage it was published yeah. and it put forward different options so the current system we have okay, you have you have an upfront fee yeah. 3,000 euros um, that students have to pay per annum and some people get the grant obviously so roughly around 40-45% people might get the grant that means they, they don't uh, have to pay that fee and they get they, 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 they avail of that 
um, if they meet a certain income threshold, but the majority of people do have to face this fee. Yeah. And I suppose my research has looked at in terms of alternatives. And some of the alternatives I mentioned in the Cassell's report in terms of the the redistributive, redistributive nature of potential alternatives and also the debate around them in terms of efficiency and equity, bringing back to yeah. basic economic concepts. So one of them is called an income contingent loan. Right. Um, it's a system that's been involved in the UK yeah. and in Australia. Like anything, you can do something badly and you can do something well, any kind of system that you design in terms of financing. So it's an alternative to, a proposed alternative, should I say, in terms of the current system that so we have. So would that be like a loan that you get, you, your fees are covered, but then when you start earning money, you pay back and the amount you pay back depends on how much you're earning? Exactly, yeah. yeah. The keyword contingent, exactly, yeah. And that, that, as opposed to, and that's, I think, you know, that, that is something that's lost in the debate. A lot of, the, you know, that word loan, debt, yeah. You think of your mortgage, you think of your car loan. And they're, they're called mortgage-style loans in the sense that, and it's like the US system, theirs, theirs is very much a mortgage-style loan. Yeah. So you borrow, you sign an agreement to say, look, I will pay back, say, €500 Euros a month for the next 10 years or whatever it is. Yeah. And that's what you pay back. No matter what your income is, no matter what you have a spell of unemployment or whatever it is, that's what you pay back. That's what you pay back in the state system. Exactly. Yeah. You know, that type of mortgage system. As opposed to the income contingent loan, it would be, there'd be a lot more mechanisms or parameters on. For instance, there would be an income threshold yeah, okay. at which you start repaying back. So for instance, if you come out of college and you don't meet that income threshold for whatever reason, in terms of your spell of unemployment, mm. you don't pay back anything. That's where the taxpayer comes in. The taxpayer takes some of the risk, takes yeah. uh, some of the burden in terms of this funding. Yeah. So once you reach that threshold, then you start repaying. And again, you can, you can the devil is in the detail in these things, and you can design a system to be okay. Um, say you pay 10% of any income, and 10% of any income you earn above a certain threshold, yeah. that goes back towards servicing your loan, for instance. And then, so would there be perverse incentives that, oh, I could, earn, I could get a promotion here and earn more, but that means I have to pay more on my loan, and therefore I might just stay where I am. Yeah, but like... Like any, like the tax system, yeah. you know, yeah, it's exactly. the tax system is the tax in yeah. terms of marginal taxes, you know, so it's, it's, it's not too dissimilar from that kind of side of things. So the, the key is, I suppose, in terms of a threshold is to not set it too low that you're capturing graduates who mightn't be getting, deriving any benefit from the degree that they can't get a job. So yeah. they're not deriving any benefit. So it's not really efficient or fair to take money off them and not to set it too high either that you don't capture any money in terms of the first incentives yeah there is, like I said it's like the income like any income tax system that you progressive income tax system that you have in the world you have the same thing yeah. the the uh, the alternative if we compare it to the alternative for instance in terms of um, the current system that we have yeah. it's an upfront fee yeah so what it does is it takes away and you, this is my economist hat it kind of you know it may, from an efficiency and equity kind of viewpoint yeah if you have that poor household, for instance, that person who I mentioned earlier that got, did really well in their upper secondary education but can't go because they see €3,000 fee, yeah. for instance, and they say, or even if they're not low income, for because the grant might cover them, they say they're in that threshold that it doesn't cover them, that, that point at which they can't qualify for a grant, yeah. but maybe the €3,000 fee is, is too much for that household. Yeah. So they're, they're caught. Yeah. So that kind of person in an alternative income contingent loan system, for instance, yeah. goes for free. They don't pay anything. Yeah. What they pay back depends on what they do with themselves later on in life. It's not contingent on their parents' income. It's not contingent on their household income. What they pay back is contingent on them throughout their life cycle. And so at what stage of consideration would this be in, in the whole policy? Oh, pipeline? God. Um, 
It's so it went to higher education. It's on the policy side of things. The report went to a committee, higher education future funding of higher education financing committee. The committee is report back to yeah. the minister. They didn't really make a recommendation in terms of what uh, option from the Gazelle support to follow through with. Yeah. Instead, it's now with the European Commission to do an economic analysis of the different systems proposed. So the other systems proposed was the status quo yeah. in terms of a bit of government funding and the student, what they call the contribution charge, for a very nice name, as opposed to a fee, you know. Yeah. Uh, or else uh, get rid of that and increase government funding. And then the third option was to continue government funding but bring in this what you call it, is income contingent loan system. So currently, it's with the commission essentially to do an economic analysis. Uh, part of my research, coming back, uh, you asked in terms of my research, is, has been to do kind of an economic analysis on it from the point of view, for instance, uh, the redistribution, redistribution of impact of it. So, yeah. what my, it was part of my PhD actually with my um, supervisor, Carl Ladunio, uh, who you know, I uh, yeah, but uh, was to look at to simulate the impact of bringing in an income contingent loan, yeah. you know, so to try and uh, simulate earnings into the future for graduates and then impose this kind of loan system on them and see, okay, what happens in terms of repayment rates? How long does it take them to repay back? Yeah. What proportion of graduates repay back? And you have to make certain assumptions, you know, around what earnings will grow at per year and you're going to make conservative assumptions. And yeah. we found it roughly around 75% of graduates will repay their loan in full. Okay. You know, from a, a certain system, you know, so we said 10,000 euros in debt. The start rate, the income threshold I mentioned before was uh, around the average industrial wage. That That's when it kicks in the repayment. You yeah. can play around with those parameters and you can sure, get your yeah. Doris in Minute has done similar research and found a similar result, which is, I suppose, somewhat reassuring yeah. of a different data set. Um, so you, you focus on the distribution of the fact that it's more progressive, that it, 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 yeah, it, it so helps that people in lower income groups a bit more. Lower earning graduates. So the lower earning earnings. graduates, right. it's not dependent on what, they've, their, what their household looks like, right, what okay. they're born into, essentially. It's how they post-college, so lower earning graduates repay less. That's a function of the system. Yeah. Um, higher earning graduates pay back more. They'll pay back their loan in full, for instance, whereas yeah. lower earning graduates won't. Um, as I said, the debate around it is, it's heated, obviously, you know, because it's a very important topic. Um, a lot of information gets gets skewed, I think, in terms of the debate. Uh, you can bring in things, for instance, which I think Aideen Moore looked at uh, with Bruce Chapman, an Australian colleague, um, as a, the idea of repayment burdens, which they have in the Australia. So you can actually cap the repayment on any given month or any given year that people face. So you're not paying back, you know, 500 euros in any given month. So... Um, so there are mechanisms you can put in a system. Yeah. You can do it badly. The UK have done it badly. Right, And okay. that's the one that's the point. If you want to look for a bad income to loan system. And why is it bad in the UK? Because they've done things like they have gotten rid of their maintenance grant system and they included the grant as a loan now. Right, okay. So, for instance, instead of having a grant system... You it's know, a loan. It, they've converted into loans. So what you're doing there is you're just giving loan more to debt people to more debt. Yeah. Which is just ridiculous. And that's that's never been... I never why... Thought, I, I don't know much about the UK system, but it seems to be much more burdensome in terms of the loan that 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 that, that you're you're shouldered with. Yeah, actually. yeah, like even the amounts. So what they, you know, the, the amounts that they do. If you compare it to the Australian system, the actual um, uh, um, fee amount basically, or the debt that you accumulated, is higher relative to Australia as well. Yeah. That they that's a. If you look at the politics of it, when did that happen? It's happened post 2010, 11, yeah. when 
a certain party wasn't going, you know, so it's, it's, you know, there's, 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 there's this politic, political side to it. Now, you know, you could say in Ireland that could happen as well in terms of if you brought in a system, it's at a political kind of whim. Mm-hmm. There are mechanisms you can do, you know, you can link it to inflation, you know, you can possibly legislate even for different things in terms of, look, yeah. you could, this is the fee, it can increase with inflation any given year. That's the param. You know, you can set certain parameters around it yeah. that potentially take the more political side out of it, given where we are now in terms of the current system. Yeah. You know, like, I, I, great, you know, if the government came around tomorrow and said, look, you know, okay, the Cassell's report recommended, I think it was 300 million more per annum um, to meet demographic needs, essentially to keep yeah. uh, 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 student staff races essentially at currently or at international norm levels as such. Yeah. Um, and if they came around yesterday and said we're going to do it that'd be great but are they going to do it you know the political reality of it yeah, we're not really to get over and so one other question then is so you've done other work on accessibility to uh, to college and in terms of a spatial context and different people from different locations and their accessibility to, to higher level education. Yeah. Maybe you could yeah. say a bit on that. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a bit of research which uh, mainly done with uh, John Cullen in the OIG and Sharon Walsh in the OIG. Um, so what we've done is, uh, what motivated actually was an initial study to look at see if distance impacted the decision to go to college. Yeah. And what we found was that we saw variations by social class so distance mattered, but it mattered for people from lower income groups. Yeah, which kind of makes sense that it, it provides you know that it provides a bigger disincentive for people to go to college if they're further away from college. But the impact is bigger on lower income people because the higher costs, obviously accommodation, those kind of things are a greater impediment to those people. Mm-hmm. So then that kind of led in terms of a different studies in terms of okay, what is the what is accessibility like in Ireland? You know, and, and if you look at it, so we did some, John kind of does the spatial analysis side of things and yeah. um, to look at, okay, what does accessibility look like? From a country perspective overall, it it, it, it looks good. It doesn't look too bad. So you can, we have maps that we've produced to look at uh, the overall higher education system. What I mean by that is universities and institutes of technology. Yeah. So we're kind of well covered. However, if you, the point of view we kind of looked in is, all right, yeah, but you know, if you, if you want equal opportunity yeah. for people on the Republic of Ireland so you and I no matter where we live that we have equal opportunity from a spatial perspective mm-hmm. somebody thought what about universities because there's obviously big differences what you can study in a university versus an IOT you can't do medicine for instance in an IOT sure yeah and what we found there was massive variation so there was very there is very poor accessibility to university education or to get to a university in the southwest of Ireland yeah and the northwest of Ireland so basically kind of yeah, Mayo. the extremities. Yeah, the extremities. But even what we've done a couple of different approaches. Then is looked at even you can weight it by population. For instance, young people. Yeah. So you know, because part of the counter argument there would be, well, not many people live in Mayo, so you know, yeah. so it doesn't really matter that you're not accessible to university because there's not many people. But even when you weight it by things like young people, the population of young people, it's still there's still areas of. Um, the country that are poorly accessible. So, so you, so how did you measure accessibility then? Yeah, so accessibility, you can measure it in a couple of different ways. You can do it just by distance. Okay. So you can do just okay. You're so the the the, the distance from uh, different parts of the country to HEIs essentially. So if you stick with the universities, so obviously it's kind of fairly obvious then that the southwest is uh, so West Kerry is poorly 
it has a low accessibility measure because it's far away from UL and it's far away from UCC. Yeah. That's a very kind of simple metric. There's other metrics you can use in terms of you can call, use this thing called a system-wide accessibility measure right. where it's, a, it's, a, it's getting someone's distance to every single university in this case yeah. from where they're from. Or from that area, should I say, you know, from the kind of area in the country. Then you do that for every area, every electoral district in the area, essentially. Yeah. And then you, you can create, a, the best way to look at that is visually, that you have a map that you can see, okay, this place is very poorly, uh, has poor accessibility to universities, not just to its nearest university, but to all universities, because it's far away yeah. from everything, essentially. Yeah. So, for I suppose an example that how that might play in, in terms of policy, for instance, in terms of link, there's been a big move towards technically universities, yeah, and a big move, for instance, in the southeast to change in terms of um, Waterford IT to technical university, right? But what we found was actually the southeast isn't as badly um, doesn't have a lower uh, uh, an extremely low accessibility metric because it's rel- compared to other parts of the country like the northwest and like. Southwest, because it's it's closer to places like UCC and it's closer to places like UCD, Maynooth. Yeah. So it, it kind of plays into policy that way as well. But there's also the fact, the aspect of household resources of, you know, you might be a long way to go for college. Yeah. But if if you have, if you can afford to live outside of the home. Yeah, absolutely. Well, then it's so, more accessible, I suppose. So part of our research, I suppose, in terms of the, the, the accessibility measure just gives a picture of accessibility. Yeah. You know, that's the broad picture in terms of accessibility the other research I suppose breaking into the micro detail of in terms of okay who does distance matter for yeah exactly and yeah. It, it matters for the the, the, the lower income households yeah. so it's um, in terms of a spatial point of view uh, yeah it's, and you, were you able to take that into account that these well I imagine rural areas have tend to have lower incomes so and these are the areas that are less accessible, so there's probably it's a difficult effect. It's a difficult one to see, to be honest, because because of data in a way, you know, what yeah. I mean? like in terms of data, in terms of progression, actually tracking people from upper secondary to third level. Yeah. So, for instance, the data we use, we had to use, was the 2007 school leavers data. Right. Okay. That's the latest data. Now, gov- the GUI, the Growing Up in Ireland survey, might change that, but it's only up to when 70. it comes to that stage. Exactly yeah. when it comes to that stage, but that's part of the problem. So that's. So in terms of our our research to look at the progression or the impact of distance on going, it, it was relatively old data, you know. So a lot has happened, obviously, in terms of fees, in since terms of... Yeah, like since 2007, yeah, that's just know, before the crash, yeah. Like, John has done some separate research at a school level to look at flows, because you can get information at a school level, kind of yeah. look at a couple of different characteristics in terms of school level and see flows at that level. But at the individual level where things like household income, you know, the kind of micro-level detail comes into play yeah. it's it's a far trickier proposition because I said data constraints you know so that yeah. that's part of the reason we went to um uh look at that broad picture of accessibility the the, the next bit of research that we did do actually was part of sharon's phd right. was create her own data so sharon by her poor old toyota uh <laughs> traveling around the country to get a sample of secondary school students right, to fair. see it, it was motivated by this idea of does distance matter yeah but then the, the, the how it kind of uh, evolved or snowballed was, okay, would people trade off distance for other characteristics of, you know, would they be willing to travel to a higher education institute if it was a really good one, for instance, or if it had a good course reputation or if it had a work placement available. So were there certain characteristics of HEIs of 
higher yeah. education institutes that they'd be willing to trade off. That's, so Sharon's done that as part of her research to see. We found is in terms of attributes that are important, yeah, distance matters, so people care about distance. Yeah. But what people really, really care about is the course reputation. But the right. reputation, what I mean by reputation is the, Im, the, the impact on you getting skills and knowledge that help you in the labour market. That's what, and it was a sample of upper secondary students. That's really interesting. And I wonder, does that perception change with the person's background? Because, for example, for me, I didn't know much about different reputations of different colleges going to, when I was in secondary school, whereas maybe that's changed and maybe people are a bit more savvy now. They're mixed. Some, I, 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 yeah, the general anecdotal now, you know, I, I think yeah. students are getting a bit more informed, I think, you yeah. know, for whatever reason, maybe it's through career guidance or better career guidance, I don't know. But I will compare to from do, just standing at a stand in open days. Yeah. I seem to be getting more questions. Yeah. Better questions about, you know, specifics about the course and things like that. So maybe they're more motivated. But yeah, in terms of the. It so didn't come out in your research, though, obviously. Well, there, was, there was heterogeneity, not that specifically, but there, there was heterogeneity around. So we collected information around their socioeconomic background and other kind of things as well you know yeah. it was what's known as the discrete choice experiment was the approach taken which is using environmental economics and uh, health economics a lot but this was kind of an application education economics yeah. Um, so uh, yeah there was heterogeneity found in terms of okay lower income backgrounds prefer people from lower income backgrounds should I say prefer certain attributes and there was heterogeneity around them but the, the headline kind of uh, news, I would say, from the research was that course rep- there was a consistent message that course reputation mattered, even from lower socioeconomic groups, yeah, to, oh. to varying degrees, you know. Okay. So, but that that they, it was course reputation that mattered from a student population. That was the yeah. and a work placement, a work placement. Uh, you know, the kind of the labour market characteristics. It kind of goes back to the human capital idea, actually. In fact, yeah, that we kind of looked at and thought, just the students are worried about can their higher education institute uh, enable them. To get a good job. To get a good job, essentially, which yeah. kind of lends its, you know, in a, in a somewhat indirect way back to the human capital thing that they are they thinking about this stuff as they're formulating their choices, you know? Yeah, no, that's, that's definitely really interesting. And so leading on to that then is a lot of the issues that are arising now, it's only going to exasperate the problem that accommodation is a lot more expensive. I remember when I was doing my undergrad in, in Galway, it was like 300 euro a month for a room. And it's, I'm sure it's double that now. And Dublin is crazy. So... That really makes it more difficult for people who need, first of all, people who need need accommodation, and secondly, people who are low socioeconomic groups who also need. need you're going to cut like what that'll do. You know, it'll it'll cut off options for people and, and yeah. choice sets to use the economic parlance, or you know, like it'll cut off choices that you know parents will have to say to people, "Look, you're going to UL, John yeah. or Mary, because I don't care if you want to do undergraduate medicine; it's not available." But like we can't yeah, afford, can't it, afford it. it, like the so. Part of that, okay, there, there's no one solution to most of these things, you know. Yeah. But, you know, the thing that would strike me in terms of would be the grant. You know, so when's the last time the grant increased in terms of the actual amount that's given towards? And how is it relative to, to rent in Dublin, for instance? Yeah. You know, so it's, it's so you could pay, for instance, I would imagine, uh, you know, you might, in terms of your accommodation costs for one year of undergraduate education, if you're going to UCD or Trinity or wherever it is I'm Dublin uh, DCU uh, uh, or uh, TU Dublin you know you're, you could pay seven grand maybe over the yeah. course of the academic year maybe yeah. you know the grant isn't going to come near covering that you know yeah, and, absolutely. and so that comes back to the funding kind of side of things if, if 
you know, if the pot isn't big enough from the government side of things, you know, does something have to change? The government increases the pot or you change the system in some kind of way that that pot can get bigger. To think about it from the economist's perspective, mm. the problem here is that the, the cost is so great that people's choices are being limited or potentially might be limited. So we need to try and change the gap from what, what, what people would do given their constraints versus what, what they would do if they, didn't, if they were unconstrained and try and allow them the good people to go to places that will serve them best, basically, and not, not have these constraints uh, being imposed on them. Um, yeah, it's market failure. Again, you know, it's, it, that, that you, you get people making kind of sub- suboptimal choices because of credit constraints, you know, so accommodation, excuse me, accommodation costs, for instance. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's and that lends itself towards a government intervention. You know, what's, what's the next step? Is all government intervention. Yeah. Now, we have government intervention in the form of a grant, but... It, it doesn't. It, it doesn't fit purpose. Fit, yes, it's all the market failure. Okay, uh, Dara, thanks very much. I think we're sort of covered pretty much everything. Yeah. Um, thanks, Milan. That was yeah, was really interesting, and appreciate your time. Thanks, Nile. Thanks, Milan. Thanks to everybody for all the messages of support over the last while. This has been a labour of love so far, so they really have meant a lot. Please keep the messages coming and let me know what you, what you like, what you don't like, or any suggestions for future episodes. A tweet or Instagram message to at Irish Econ Pod is really appreciated. Remember to keep spreading the word. A community is growing around the podcast now, which is really great. And we really want to keep the conversation going as much as possible. So tell your friends, family members, colleagues, anyone you think might be interested. If doing so online is easier, remember to tag us at Irish Econ Pod on social media and we'll help spread the word further again. So thanks everybody and all the best.